This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... IPOC has repeatedly denied involvement in a surge of violent attacks in southeastern Nigeria over the past two years. That's Timothy Obiezu reporting on the shooting death of a traditional leader in Nigeria. Details coming up. Also, an update on the Ebola outbreak in Uganda. And the Carthage Eagles are set to fly at the World Cup. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Cabinet ministers from around the world are negotiating an agreement at the COP27 summit on climate change this week in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. They are heading into the last few days of the two-week summit, which must be discussed. Egypt's presidency for COP27 is very important as a middle-income African and Middle Eastern country hosting this event. There are four main items at the top of the agenda, climate finance, adaptation, loss and damage, and increased ambition. Egypt has a significant role to play in all of them. Amir Hamzawi, director of Carnegie Middle East Program, uh, led Carnegie delegation to the conference. He spoke with VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shanawi about Egypt's influence, the agenda items to bring more focus to Africa's increasing needs for adaptation and mitigation financing. Yes, by all means. Egypt has framed its charm COP27 as an Africa summit. It's not the first time that a COP meeting takes place in an African country, but it's the first time that the COP meeting is framed as an Africa Cup. Um, So Egypt has influenced the framing of COP27 to be an Africa summit to a great extent. Egypt has pushed forward in coordination with different African uh, groups and uh, subcommittees out of the African Union, as well as different groups in which Africa participates, uh, groups in which developing countries in general participate, but you have African subcommittees like the committee, the 77 plus China committee and other committees. Egypt has pushed forward different initiatives, different ideas pertaining to finance, mitigation, slash adaptation, as well as loss and damage. However, the biggest success of Egypt in COP27 from an African perspective has been to include loss and damage on the agenda, which happened on the first day of COP27. And contrary to Glasgow, uh, COP26 and previous COP meetings in which the developed world, in which the rich north blocked the inclusion of loss and damage on the agenda, this time Egypt, of course, with a very powerful developing countries groups, uh, managed to include the loss and damage. And now the question becomes whether the discussion will result in concrete pledges and concrete mechanisms to implement the pledges for loss and damage. The, the simple idea is we are paying the price of a climate change to which we marginally contributed, if any, and therefore a bit of a compensation financially and otherwise should be included in the discussion. A new consensus between developed and developing countries can make effective active action to combat climate change as a reality. Did you detect that COP27 meeting in Egypt as the first COP for Africa is ready to reach that consensus between the two sides? 
it's bound to take time. I mean, there are different vibes which I gathered from participating in the first week in the meeting in Sharm. Number one, the developed countries are facing a dilemma. Um, they are facing an economic and financial situation after two years of the pandemic and with the Russian war in Ukraine and the impact of the pandemic and the Russian war in Ukraine. They are facing an economic and financial situation which is not easy. We have a spike in food prices and energy prices. We have high inflation rates. We have increasing financial impasses in different developed countries. So they are facing a dilemma of whether they can pledge commit and pledge to support mitigation and adaptation efforts and the green transition in the developing world or not. They continue to be committed rhetorically, whether it will result in pledges and concrete implementation mechanisms remain to be seen. From a developing country's perspective, I mean, the only possible consensus is a consensus which takes into account the fact that the developing countries have not benefited from the emissions, carbon emissions, and the different emissions which have been primarily the responsibility of the developed world and China. We have a G7 group, which is responsible for over 60% of the world's emissions. We have a G20 group, which is responsible for over 80% of the worldwide emissions. So we, in the developing world, have not been responsible for it. So the only possible consensus is to uh, include loss and damage seriously and to start pledging in a very concrete manner, and not only in loans, but in grants for the mitigation and adaptation in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. That was Amir Hamzawi, director of Carnegie Middle East Program at the COP27 summit. He spoke with VOA's Mohammed El Shinawi. We have reportedly re- reported recently on the hunger strike of jailed Egyptian activist Abdel Fattah. Today, his family said he has ended his month-long hunger strike. Fattah was a leader in the uprising that overthrew longtime President Hosni Mubarak 11 years ago. He's now serving a five-year sentence for spreading false news about police brutality on Facebook. The French press agency, AFP, and other news organizations say his sister shared with the media a note from him asking his mother to bring him a birthday cake on Thursday. That's when she makes her visit to Wadi al-Natrun prison, about 100 kilometers from Cairo. The activist has made headlines during the COP27 climate summit taking place at the resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh. Police in Nigeria's southeast Imo state are investigating after gunmen, allegedly from the separatist group, the indigenous people of Biafra, shot and killed a traditional ruler and three others. The group has previously denied responsibility for a series of attacks in the region that authorities blame on the rebels. The killings Monday came as a court in the capital dismissed terrorism charges against the separatist group's leader, Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. Imo State Police said in a statement that gunmen disguised as locals in distress invaded the palace in the Oguta local government area around noon Monday, shooting and killing the monarch. The gunman also killed two of his aides and a local vigilante member near the palace. Police are blaming a separatist group, the indigenous people of Biafra or IPOB, for the killings. On Tuesday, Nigerian President Muhammad Buhari condemned the murder of the traditional ruler and called on police to investigate. Imo State Police spokesperson Michael Abatam told VOA by phone they are already heeding the president's call. We are investigating already and we have clues. 
Abatam could not provide further details. IPOP has repeatedly denied involvement in a surge of violent attacks in southeastern Nigeria over the past two years. Between May and October of last year, authorities said at least 175 people, including military, police and local civilians, were killed in attacks in the region. Imo State is a strong base of support for the Biafran separatist movement, which began decades ago. The movement is now led by 54-year-old Namdi Kanu, who is facing trial for acts of terrorism and treason against the Nigerian state. Kanu's legal counsel, Ifanye Jofo, says authorities are trying hard to implicate the separatist movement. As a conspiracy by the government of the day, and do their best to... He said it's a conspiracy by the government of the day and security agents to blackmail IPOB before the international community. He noted that IPOB has issued several publications distancing itself from those committing crimes. These are serious offenses. These people should be hunted and treated like criminals, he said. But they are not IPOB members. They are not Kanu's followers. Experts warn violence in the southeast could increase around elections next year after unidentified gunmen issued warnings on social media for people not to vote. Meanwhile, on Monday, an Abuja High Court adjourned Kanu's terrorism trial indefinitely. Last month, a three-judge appeals court panel in the capital held that Nigerian authorities breached local and international treaties to unlawfully arrest and detain Kanu and annulled terrorism charges against the separatist leader. Nigerian authorities are challenging the ruling and have yet to free the separatist. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. An African affairs expert says the outcome of U.S. midterm elections will favor U.S.-Africa relations. The analyst says that Democrats' control of the Senate will afford President Joe Biden the opportunity to advance his Africa policies. Professor Chris Isiki is the director, African Center for the Study of the United States at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. Isiki spoke to reporter Mike Mbonier about the outcome of U.S. midterm elections. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, contrary to expectations of a red wave, um, you know, on the back of high inflation rates, rising cost of living, and an immigration crisis, uh, the, the, the Democrat Party had a very good outing, even though uh, they are now projected to lose the uh, leadership of, of, of the House. Traditionally, in U.S. politics, midterms are, are a referendum on, on on incumbent presidents, and typically, their parties, you know, um, uh, lose heavily in, in in the first midterms of the presidents as they struggle with, you know, the economy, for example, uh, resulting in low approval ratings. So, if you look at uh, the cases of President Ronald Reagan, uh, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, all of them saw their approval ratings decline, you know, to 42 percent. 41% and I think 46% respectively at their first midterm elections. In, in, in Biden's case, his approval rating, you know, going into the um, 2022 midterms was 41%, you know, amongst Americans and 43% among uh, uh, registered voters. 
um, sadly or surprisingly, well, not so surprising for me, the Republican Party failed to capitalize on the economic challenges of the time to coast to widely expected, you know, victory as, as suggested by the polls and, and of course, historical antecedents. Uh, instead, as, as, as President Biden himself said, Democrats had the best midterm elections in the last 40 years. Um, let me add that I, I, I'm not so surprised by the outcome in favor of Democrats, given the other issues on the ballot. You know, for example, democracy was on the ballot, abortion rights, and, and Donald Trump, of course. However, what the polls also missed in their predictions was the um, influence of independent voters, the influence of women and young people generally. I think they made a difference, uh, you know, uh, having bought into President Biden's big uh, campaign issue. Um, which was democracy. So, so democracy won and Trump, populism and extremism lost. What are the implications for Africa on the outcome of U.S. midterm elections on issues like U.S. aid, climate change, efforts to preserve democracy? Well, the Democrats' control of the Senate affords President Biden leeway to advance and implement his U.S.-Africa uh, strategy given the pivotal role that Senate plays in making and funding U.S. foreign policy. Um, so losing Congress and Senate leadership would have stalled, if not hampered, uh, you know, the U.S.-Africa policy, given that the GOP is less friendly to, to Africa. In fact, before the elections, many policy uh, makers in Africa were worried uh, that depending on the outcome, the U.S. may not be in a position to pursue the goals outlined in the, uh, you know, uh, recently launched U.S. Africa strategy. And, and this strategy, you know, actually has provisions on climate change, tackling, you know, terrorism, uh, promoting democracy. And for the first time, it is a U.S.-Africa uh, policy that recognizes Africans as equal partners in their own development. So, so, so uh, look, the, the, the influence of um, um, Trump-picked MAGA senators would have, the, the influence they would have wielded if, if Republicans gave control of the Senate would have been less uh, positive for Africa. So, for example, the likes of J.D. Vance of Ohio, who will now replace retiring pro-Africa Senator Portman, is one less bipartisan support for African causes. Uh, so, so, in my view, overall, the less MAGA Republicans in the Foreign Affairs Committees of both houses, the better for Africa, even though we know that U.S. interest always remains permanent and comes first, irrespective of which party is in power at any level of government. That was Professor Chris Esiki at the African Center for Study of the United States at the University of Pretoria. He spoke with reporter Mike Mboni on the telephone from Pretoria. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA and radio programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. In Uganda, health officials say an Ebola case has been confirmed in Jinja in eastern Uganda, the first time the outbreak has spread to a new part of the country from central Uganda where cases had been confined up to now. 
Jason Rizzo is the Doctors Without Borders coordinator for MSF's Ebola response in Uganda. He says, as of November 11th, there are at least 139 confirmed Ebola cases, 55 deaths, and 69 recoveries in Uganda. MSF is working with the Ministry of Health to try to contain the spread of the disease. Rizzo tells VOA's Carol Van Dam there has been a bit of good news recently on efforts to contain the outbreak. There have been some positive developments over the last few weeks, uh, notably in the sense that there are two districts that have not reported any new, new cases over the past several weeks, and as well the number of new cases being reported on a daily basis throughout the country has kind of averaged around one to two for the last week, week and a half. So on that side of things, we are enthusiastic. We hope that that situation will continue. But we also know that from past outbreaks that you can have low case numbers and then they spike again. And the other thing to be mindful of and that we are alarmed by is that the outbreak has recently spread to two new districts. Uh, that is Masaka and Jinja. And these are um, cases that were reported in those districts, but were originating from Kampala. So Kampala is obviously a large concern for us as well in the sense that it's a larger center, people are moving around, densely populated, and so the risk uh, of active transmission in Kampala as well as these two new districts is present and, and is quite alarming. You're working hand-in-hand with the Ministry of uh, Health, I would imagine. How are you getting the word out to people? So it's really about having a meaningful dialogue with communities, with community leaders, with churches, with markets, with uh, religious groups, with focus group discussions. The, The idea is not really to just put posters up, show up for half an hour and then disappear, but it's really to go back time and time again on a daily basis to understand what the community is thinking and saying about Ebola to try to address some of their concerns and integrate that into the overall uh, response. And so that's something that we are trying to to really scale up, particularly, like I said, in Kampala, uh, to ensure that people are aware and as well that they know that this is really a life or death matter in the sense that we know that the sooner patients are admitted to a treatment center, the better their chances of our survival of How has the reception been? Do people seem to be more willing to come in when they think they might have symptoms or are they still worried about what the ramifications are going to be? Some people do present early, but I think uh, the, the large majority are not presenting soon enough. And then that makes our job as doctors very difficult to try to save them. The issue is not necessarily that they are fearful It is more that they need to be informed about what Ebola is, that it is present in Uganda, and that there is a process to follow that can help them in the sense that they can, you know, if they are aware that it exists and if they are aware that there are mechanisms that they can go to for support, you know, that that also means then that you have to work through the, the healthcare system. And that goes across the board from all the way from hospitals to health clinics to private facilities to pharmacies to traditional healers. That's Jason Rizzo, MSF's coordinator in Uganda for the Medical Humanitarian Organization's Ebola response. He was speaking with VOA's Carol Van Dam from Kampala, Uganda. 
Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has told lawmakers in Parliament he is committed to a peace deal struck with Tigrayan leadership in South Africa earlier this month to end two years of deadly conflict in northern Tigray region. Fred Harter reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. In his address to Parliament Tuesday, Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed said the warring parties must now ensure they follow through on the agreement. We have discussed, we have agreed, we have signed, said Abiy. What is expected next is to implement. Only implementation, he added, could make the peace sustainable. Under the terms of the November 2 ceasefire deal in Pretoria, Ethiopia's federal government will take control of the Tigray region's borders, roads and airports, while Tigrayan fighters will disarm. On November 12, military commanders representing Ethiopia's federal government and the Tigray region signed an agreement which included the disarmament of heavy weapons and the withdrawal of foreign and non-ENDF or federal military forces from the Tigray region. Disarmament is set to start on November 15, according to a copy seen by VOA. Abiy also stressed peace was necessary to repair the economy and maintain the existence, sovereignty and unity of Ethiopia, Africa's second most populous country with 120 million people. Peace is all the time good, he said. Even if you are winning, war is bad all the time because you are killing people, you are firing dollars. The Ethiopian Prime Minister was responding to questions from lawmakers. The ceasefire, signed in Pretoria, commits the federal government to ensuring unhindered aid access to Tigray, where the region's 6 million people need urgent food and medicine. Over the weekend, Ethiopia's federal government said basic services were slowly being restored to Tigray. Fred Hatter, for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Shortly after Abiy made his speech, the International Committee of the Red Cross said trucks carrying medical aid reached Tigray today, the first such aid to enter since fighting resumed in August. The North African country of Tunisia is no stranger to World Cup games, have competed in five previous ones and even won in 1978. The Carthage Eagles, as the national team is called, hope to reclaim that glory in the Qatar World Cup. Adila Krim has more. The Tunisian football entered the last preparatory camp for the World Cup in Dunham, Saudi Arabia, with the last preparatory friendly match against Iran scheduled for November 16th in Qatar. Tunisian football player Safadine Jaziri says he is hopeful for a successful match. Our target is to go as far as we can and make Tunisians happy. Another football player from Tunisia, Halayan Halali, who has played in the World Cup matches before, says he hopes the team will advance to the second round. It's the second World Cup in a row for me. We should keep and work on the good things we did in Russia, World Cup 2018. Our target is to qualify to the second round. Tunisia plays in Group D in the first round of 2022 World Cup along with France, Denmark and Australia. The Carthage Eagles will play against the Danish national team on November 22, 2022 before they meet the Australian team on the 26th of the same month and the 2018 world champion France on the 30th of November. The team's national coach, Jalil Qadar says the Carthage Eagles will do whatever it takes to make the country proud. I want to tell Tunisians that we share the same hopes and dreams. We trust the group and we can do what makes Tunisians happy. For player Amin Balouli, 
Support for everyone is the key to the team's success. I hope everyone stands by outside and supports the national team in the World Cup and forget the negative points. For Voice of America, this is Adil Akram in Washington. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiya Suhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokwilia Barrow, and our engineer, Adrias Regas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM stations.